0: I want to talk to you this morning, you know, we're we're talking about cracked pots. When people mess up, what happens? When people mess up, everybody needs to be loved, every one of us. But when someone's failed, they really need to hear that they're loved. And we all fail. But God loves us while we were still sinners and none of us, absolutely none of us deserve His love. We need to practice restoration because there may be a time when you and I blow it huge. Well, here's a very important question and, and, it, and it's the, the question as we go through this, this message this morning how should we treat someone who has messed up, stepped into sin, fallen? What is our responsibility to that person? A young girl uh, out in Oregon, this has been a number of years ago, uh, was invited to sing the national anthem at the uh, 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 NBA uh, playoff game and the Portland Trailblazers were playing and uh, she had had the flu and she got up and started to sing and she froze, she forgot the words. And probably this young girl, she was 12 years old, probably the most embarrassing time in her life. The coach at the time, and I'm sure that if, if you guys are anywhere near my age uh, or you're a, you're a Uh, Sports buff, remember, Maurice Cheeks. Maurice was a uh, forward for the 76ers for 15 years. Well, he was the coach, (coughs) the head coach for the Portland Trailblazers. And this little girl was the spotlight was on her. And uh, Mr. Cheeks got up and went beside her, put his arm around her, and started singing the National Anthem with her. And it only took a few seconds for her to, to get rid of that feeling of, of discomfort, and they started to sing together. And then the crowd began singing the National Anthem with her. She had those people standing on their they they had them standing on their feet singing. She messed up. But fortunately, there was somebody there to help her recover and she finished strong. Wouldn't it be great if we as Christians had that same attitude? When a brother or a sister falls, that we're there to help them up, help them to finish strong. Because everybody, even Christians, are going to lose it, we're going to sin. And when Christians sin and it becomes public knowledge, we often refer to them as as fallen. Well, they haven't fallen from salvation. They've they've fallen thank you, Jeremy, appreciate that. They've fallen from their testimony. They've they've fallen down in their walk with God. And instead of extending a hand to help them up, many times Christians react by kicking them when they're down. It's been said that in the, the army of the Lord, we're the only army that shoots their wounded. <laughs> we find some strong words in 2 Corinthians how, on how we should treat a Christian who's taken a sin tumble. Uh, open your Bibles or read on the, on the projector with me. 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul writes, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, not if you forgive this man, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Trust God will bless the reading of his word this morning. When we study the Bible, we should ask three questions. Three questions. What do the words mean to the people that were addressed at the time this was written? You know, this, this is written for us, but this wasn't written to us. This was written to a group of believers in the city of Corinth. The second thing, what are the principles revealed in this passage that apply to us today and to Christians everywhere, not just in the in the Near East? And how do these words and Bible principles apply to me personally? Well as it as it relates to the passage of Scripture we're going to answer all three questions in in that order. First thing is sin is confronted. Let's review verse 5. He says, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. The punishment inflicted on him was by the majority is sufficient for him. So there's this guy in the church and he'd committed a sin and, and some, some say, and it grieved Paul, but it grieved the entire church. And we don't know exactly who he is or what he, what he had done. Bible scholars, and I'm, I'm leaning toward this camp. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to Uh, make too fine of a point on it, but uh, some Bible scholars will say that this was the the young man that sinned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you recall, that he was sleeping with his stepmother and uh, he'd been uh, put out of the church. Um, But he'd been confronted by a larger group because Paul mentions the punishment inflicted him, inflicted on him by the majority. So the word majority might mean there is some kind, maybe some kind of a vote taken. Based on, on what uh, Jesus taught in Matthew 18, there are times when issues like this should be addressed by the larger group. You know, Jesus taught there's three steps that need to be followed when a brother or sister is confronted by sin. And the first is the offended person should approach the guilty person one-on-one. So, how it, how it works is that, that uh, I caused Gary a problem, and I, or I, I've sinned, and maybe I was working at the, at the car lot with him, and I, I had kind of a shady deal, and I did something that I shouldn't have done, and he's the only one that knew about it. And so he comes to me as a brother in Christ and says, John, this is what happened. Don't try and deny it. I got the proof right here. And so if, if I repent, a, a brother has been gained. I can be restored. But what if I, if I say, like this young man in 1 Corinthians said, you know, go pound sand, fella. Then if the guilty believer doesn't respond, Gary should, have, should take... Uh, Jeremy with him to come to me and to request that uh, the issue be settled that I would repent. I'm telling you if, if that ever happened to me I would, I would fall down at your feet and repent. I, I don't, I, I just, that would that would kill me. And then if two of you came at me and this crowd all six of you wouldn't be coming after me. Well, thirdly, if the guilty person still doesn't respond positively, the issue is brought before the church, exposed, and the person be put out of the church. In fact, when you look at 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't even have, don't have fellowship with him. Don't even sit down and have a meal with this guy. He says that if he doesn't listen, we're to treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Treat him as an unbeliever. Well, truthfully, if a person doesn't respond after these three steps, there's a good chance that he may not really be a believer. And you may be wondering if we still follow that procedure today in this church. I tell you, categorically, without question, beyond a shadow of a doubt, take it to the bank, we practice church discipline. It's ugly it's painful, it's biblical, and we do it. Our leadership is commanded to, uh, to obey all of the Word of God and the steps that Jesus outlined <laughs> work just as well today as it did 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> so this may have been a public warning for this young man to repent or it may have been a public rebuke or a censure, but as we'll see in the next point, whatever they did worked And this young man repented. Put yourself in that position. How would you respond? When the deacons or the preacher comes knocking at your door and say, you know, we've got a problem here, and it's done very privately, what would you do? I believe that my brothers and sisters that that I'm serving here would repent. But that brings us to the, to the second point here. And the second point is the guilty repent. And that's what happened. In, Cor- in Corinth, the guilty person was lovingly confronted by the group and he repented. Lovingly, lovingly, did I say lovingly? Confronted and he repented. We see this in verse 7. You ought to forgive and comfort him. Huh. You miserable egg sucking dog! You want me to comfort? You want me to comfort you? You're a lowlife. You're worse than a lowlife. Yeah. Okay. Love, love. Hug, hug. Kiss, kiss. And we comfort. We restore. We set this brother up back on his feet and when he's repented we don't bring it up anymore he's restored and we're going to talk about this restoration the key phrase here is, is uh, uh, you ought to forgive him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow the, the, the key phrase here is excessive sorrow the man at fault has expressed sorrow over his actions and Paul said that it was time to forgive him so that he wouldn't experience an overload of sorrow it's a be- there's a direct correlation between correlation between sorrow and repentance. That sorrow is going to bring you to that point of repentance. The Holy Spirit starts working you over and if you truly are being, uh, being assessed and addressed by the Holy Spirit He's going to drag you through a knothole backwards. It is not pleasant. And we use, we use the term, and it's worn out, I'm sorry. We use it from everything from I'm sorry we're out of peanuts to I'm sorry I knocked the soft drink over into your lap. You know, it's I'm sorry. But the words I'm sorry originally meant, meant I'm experiencing sorrow for what I've done. I'm sorry and if you can come to that place of of using that that definition I think I'm okay with it I'm sorry I'm experiencing sorrow over what I did so the Bible teaches that godly sorrow produces repentance and this kind of worldly sorrow that doesn't uh, this there's a kind of worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance Uh, I'm sorry might be I'm sorry I got caught I'm sorry that you, uh, you're bringing this, this up to me right now. Or if they say, I'm sorry, they don't plan on changing their behavior, they're just trying to get you off their back. Godly sorrow always produces repentance. When a person truly repents, their heart is broken over that sin. In commenting on this passage, uh, the writer, uh, preacher, uh, commentator Ray Stedman wrote, This man had repented, he had admitted what he did was wrong, and that's what repentance is, the sign that you really see that what you did was wrong is that you begin to see the hurt that you've caused by it. And he continues, and it creates a sense of sorrow that you have been the instrument by which many have been damaged in their faith or in their feelings. Therefore, the mark of true repentance is sorrow. Maybe there's a young man or a young woman that has looked up to you and you've kind of been their mentor. And you have 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 taken that dive into sin. Think about the sorrow you caused that young person. Think of the sorrow that you've caused our Lord. And you're going to be able to start grieving over the sorrow that you're causing yourself because of that sin. So the mark of true repentance is is sorrow. The third thing is, seek to restore those who have repented. Seek to restore those who have repented. Here's the answer to the question about how we should treat people who have messed up. Seek to restore those who have repented. The the paraphrase of verse 7 says, now is the time to forgive this man and help him back on his feet. If all you do is pour on the guilt, you could very well drown him in it. Some of the Corinthians believe that the individual who had sinned need to suffer further before being restored. You know, they, they say, you know, that, that scoundrel doesn't need to be restored. He needs to stew in his own juice a little bit. There's, there is no reason he hasn't repented, that rascal. And you set yourself up as the Holy Spirit. And Paul disagreed and he insisted that, on the contrary, the Corinthians should rather forgive and comfort him. And his pain had brought him to repentance and now it's time to restore his joy. Now it's time. Okay, you've confessed it. You've confessed it to the Lord and you're, you're, you're admitting it to your brothers and your sisters. And you've asked for forgiveness. You've repented. And the church cannot set arbitrary limits on grace and mercy, friends. It cannot reject a truly penitent individual no matter how serious the sin was. Now, are there consequences? Absolutely there are consequences. Absolutely. if If the sin was of such a nature that disqualified you from holding an office in the church, you won't hold an office. You still can worship. After you've repented, you still can worship. Yes, we'll restore you, but we're not going to restore you to that, to that office. How many times have you heard of a pastor who runs off with the church secretary? Now, the cool <laughs> I run off with the church secretary every night. I even sleep with the church secretary. <laughs> uh, don't tell my wife. That is that is the 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 failsafe for guys who are in the ministry. If they can have their wife serve beside them, it, it is that she holds you accountable and you're not gonna you're not gonna get into trouble. But so many guys you've heard it time and time again, haven't you, of of, of these guys who who something's going haywire at home and they run off with the the piano player, or the or- I'm going to say the organist because we don't have one, <laughs> but, or, or somebody. And, and they get caught or they just come to their senses, they repent, they ask forgiveness, they ask to be restored, and the church will restore them. But that man will never biblically hold the office of pastor again. He has disqualified himself. So there are, and we're not talking about I'm naming the sins that disqualify you from, from uh, serving. But there are, what I'm, I'm saying is that there are consequences for sin. For the Corinthians to not forgive the repentant person could be, would be sin and bring God's chastening on them too. Unforgiveness would also render them unfit for worship. We see that uh, when in, in Matthew when... When Jesus talks about uh, someone who is wanting to present their offering to the altar and they have something against another brother there to go and make amends and then come back and present their offering. So when a brother or sister has sinned and, sorrow and, repent, and then sorrowed and repented, our only goal is to restore them. And that means to restore them to fellowship and usefulness. Sadly, it seems that more churches practice rejection rather than restoration. The Bible clearly teaches the beautiful process. Let me read Galatians 6 1 through 2. It's a beautiful, this is one of the most fantastic verses of Scripture, portions of Scripture. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful. Not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the law of love. So, it doesn't mean that that the super saints are summoned to go after the sinner. It's saying you who are walking with God, you who are godly, uh, the, uh, 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 there, some of your Bibles may say uh, you who are spiritual. And that's an unfortunate translation because uh, we, we start setting up this uh, well, okay, how do, is spirituality determined? You know, is this the way I cut my hair, the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I walk? It's you who are godly. You who have a consistent walk with Jesus Christ. You restore that brother or sister who is overcome with sin and you do it with gentleness and humility you put them back on their feet help them back on the right path but be careful not to fall into the same temptation so that temptation is that we should have uh, is, is that the, the temptation is to believe that we're better than the person we are restoring you know, I'm I'm Holy Joe, well, Holy John, <laughs> and and uh, uh, because you are down here groveling in your sin, I somehow am better than you, and and that's that's the temptation. And in restoring others, we should remember the ad, adage, and my spiritual father used to tell me this all the time: "But for the grace of God, have you ever heard that? But for the grace of God, there go I." And But for the grace of God, that's where I used to be. And, and God has restored many of us. So we know what that, what that feels like when we have sinned, when we're down, down and out. And, and, uh, and we're, we're, we've been down so long, it looks like up. And yet, the spiritual man or woman of God that, the, that godly man or woman reaches down and helps us up, helps us back onto that path. So according to the scripture, these two things involved in restoration, forgive them, why? Because we've forgiven, been forgiven, and love them because Christ first loved us. Some people say that forgiveness is a choice, but as a follower of Christ, we really don't have a choice in the matter. Forgiveness is obligatory. Forgiveness is a command. You might be tempted to think or say, "He doesn't deserve forgiveness. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven." Well, that's not that, that we're we're not, that we're not the judge and the jury here. The reason we forgive others is because Jesus has forgiven us. Over in Ephesians four thirty two, instead, we used to tell this to our girls all the time: "Be kind to each other." Uh, the girls would be scrapping and fighting and snorting and growling, and you know how you know how girls are. And uh, you who have daughters, <laughs> yeah, they can they can be gnarly little beasties. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So be kind, tender, and forgiving. That's our attitude as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Let me show you three promises of forgiveness. Three promises of forgiveness. These are, these are good. I won't allow our relationship to be governed any longer because of what you did. I will treat you as if it never happened. Like, I'm giving Joe the business, and I was rebuked by my sister back there. i have given you the business, and, but I won't allow our relationship because whatever happened... Uh, be governed any longer because what you did I'm going to treat you as if it never happened so that means we are restored our relationship is good again the second thing I won't pass this information along to anybody else it's between you and me brother this applies when the issue is between two people but in the case of the man in Corinth whose sin was known by the group it means we promise that we're not going to bring this up again and talk among ourselves about what happened and we're not going to talk about it outside of our group and the third thing, I promise myself that I will repent, I will, that, I, that I will repeat the act of forgiveness every time the issue resurfaces in my memory. You know, I, I, have, you ever, have you ever been at a place where you have, 20 years ago, something happened, you repented of it, you know that you have been forgiven, you confessed it, the relationship has restored, whatever it was, and the devil, I mean, out of out from left field, comes along and smacks you upside the head and says, what are you doing having devotions? Put that Bible down, you don't believe a thing in it. After all, remember what you did to so-and-so? And you start rem- remembering and recounting, bringing back and, and rehearsing through your mind all that mess that you were involved in. Rather than saying, Satan, get out of here. This has been taken care of. It was taken care of at the cross. How many times have you heard, well, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. Let me translate translate that for you. Uh, Would you like to hear what that means in the Greek? I won't forgive you. It means that way in the English, it means that way in Finnish, it means that way in Spanish. It's the same thing. I'll forgive but I won't forget means I really don't forgive you. Biologically, you can't forget things that happen to you except if you have brain damage or senility. But when you forgive someone, you're promising yourself that you're not going to allow this issue to make you bitter ever, ever again. It's done. It's over. It's over. Forget it. Don't bring it up. The memory of that sin might circle around in your noggin occasionally, but you can't let it land. Uh, Billy Graham said, You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building their nest in your hair. (laughs) So when we've forgiven someone and the memory of their sin kind of flutters by our brain, just say, I deliberately remember choosing to forgive that. And Jesus went to the cross for that. Galatians 6.2, we see that restoration involves carrying someone's burdens. And when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Your burden now becomes my burden. The, the thing that drug you down as a believer, I'm supposed to come beside you and help you carry that, the weight of that burden to the place where you can truly put it aside and you're restored because you've messed up and God says, I fixed the mess. Everybody needs to be loved, but when someone has failed, they really need to hear that they're loved. And that's what Paul says, reaffirm your love for the one who's failed. We neither, uh, God, God loves us while we're yet sinners and none of us deserve his love. And 1 John 4.19 says, we love each other because he first loved us. There's a th- another uh, another sports illustration. I, I you know I, I don't usually use them unless I'm talking about the Cubs or the Bears. Any Cubs or Bears fans? New people? Cubs or Bears? Fan? Oh, that's okay. That's a Kansas City. Oh, there's hope for you. <laughs> Tom Osborne was a phenomenal coach, godly godly man, still is, uh, of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Any Husker fans? No, oh yeah very sure okay um (laughs) they were they were having a a rough day and he told his is none nothing was working and and Osborne told his quarterback call plays seven and eight which were running plays left and right and the uh the opposing team caught on and so it wasn't working and so uh the quarterback called a play on his own, 16 bootleg, which is a pass. He rolled to the right, tossed the pass for a touchdown and win as time expired. And Osborne asked his, co- his quarterback, he says, you know, why did you call that play? I, sa- I, I sent a play into you. He says, coach, you sent it in too late. Well, but why 16 bootleg? He says, well, you know, you had seven and eight, you kept on calling seven and eight. And uh, I, just, I just figured that there was something that you had in mind, so I added 7 and 8, and I came up with 16, so 16 bootleg. <laughs> Son, you may be a college student. You may be in your junior year. You may be an economics major, but you are dumber than dust. Seven and eight is fifteen, and he looks at the coach and he says, gee, coach, I guess if I was as smart as you, we wouldn't have won. (laughs) You know, we can make mistakes and still win. We can make mistakes, we can mess up, and still win. That's why we need to practice restoration. The last thing, restoration disrupts Satan's plans. So Satan, you, we, we forgive, so Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Paul stressed that the Corinthians must forgive and restore the repentant individual so that no advantage would be taken of them by Satan. You know, what, what's Satan called? One of his names is, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He delights in accusing us. He jumps up and down doing backflips. When a Christian sins, I hear music. He loves it. And yet, we're told we don't want to give him any, any room to, to wiggle here. The word for the devil's schemes or sly ways is the word methodia, and we get our word method from it. You know, he. He has two major, major methods are to divide and conquer and tell lies. That's, that's Satan's M.O. He attacked Eve in the Garden of Eden when she was alone. He fed her a lie. And, and if you eat this, if you, if you touch this fruit, you're going to be, you'll be like God. And the devil isn't very innovative. He still uses the same methods he used in Genesis 3. That's why the Bible says, Do not let the sun go down when you're angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Boy, you know, you go to bed when you've when you've had a, a problem with with your with your spouse and you haven't kissed and made up. And I, I guarantee I don't know, maybe you're not like this, but I have a miserable night's sleep. But I'm not she was the one that started it, so why should I why should I say I'm sorry? You know, it was the woman you gave me, Lord, that causes uh, causing all of this. Exactly. I like that. That's a that's that that's that note. Ephesians 4:26 says, "Don't let don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil." So when you stay angry with a brother or sister in Christ, that animosity gives Satan access to your mind. Does does anyone come to your mind who's messed up and instead of forgiveness they were written off? They're drowning and you can't rescue them from the shore, my brother, my sister. you got to get out there in the water with them. If God brings someone to mind, why don't you jump in and rescue them with restoration? Maybe you're here today and you need to be Restored. You're listening to me but you've messed up and you were sorry and repented yet instead of forgiveness and restoration you've received alienation and rejection. The hand that your group offered was a fist not an open hand of love. You still love Jesus as much as ever it's just that God's children have failed to restore you. So remember the name of this series, Hope, Hope for Pots. All of us have some cracks. All of us have some nicks and dents and, and broken pieces. And you may feel that you're on the sidelines, but God can get you back in the game. And God wants to restore you. And in the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, I declare that you are forgiven and you are healed because of the blood of Christ at the cross. This church is far from perfect. There are people, though, that are here who are willing to accept you and love you. We specialize in loving warts (laughs) because we all have them. So, you know, if this is touching you in any way, let the Spirit of God heal you and allow the people of God to love you. And may God allow our church to be a haven for restoring crackpots. And may we become known as the fellowship of restoration. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I do thank You. I thank You for reconciliation. I thank You for restoration. Lord, it, it wouldn't be possible without the cross. And if there's one here today, Lord, that doesn't know You as Savior, may this be the day that they say, I need to be fully restored, Lord. I don't understand it all, but I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died for my sin, and I ask you to come into my life and save me. And I believe when you went to the cross, you did it for me, that I could live forever with you, and I thank you for that. If you prayed that prayer and you never have before, come see me or, or one of the leaders and We'd like to share with you the, uh, that, that wonderful gospel that you've responded to that you're restored, made whole, and ready to serve again.